good news is there's hope for you, Private. Hope in the form of glorious combat. Battle is the great redeemer, the fiery crucible in which the only true heroes are forged. One place where all men truly share the same rank, regardless of what kind of parasitic scum they were going in. Squads, this here is Private Cage. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I am your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 208. And our film this week is 2014's Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise. And joining me to talk about it, it's Phil Rude. Phil, how you doing? I have been living, dying, and repeating all day long. <laughs> I'm good, oh, Travis. How are you? I am doing quite well. Um, all right, so Edge of Tomorrow, 2014, uh, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, um, directed by Doug Lyman, written by a host of people. Um, we'll get into some of the writers in a little bit. But first thing I want to know is what is your background with this movie? When did you see it for the first time, or was this your first time? No, I'd seen this uh, probably when it was pretty new to video. And I remember really liking the concept, and that really stuck with me. It's like uh, if Groundhog Day was a war movie or uh, Groundhog Day and uh, Starship Troopers had a baby, this is what it would be. Um, but I've probably maybe caught bits and pieces of it on cable or something over the years. It blew me away to realize this movie is almost 10 years old now. <laughs> yeah. um, but... Uh, but this is the first, today was the first time I've actually sat down and watched it beginning to end pr probably since the first time okay. I, I watched it. Other than that, it's just been, uh, bits and pieces, but because everything repeats, you never know exactly where you are in the movie if you just walk into it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a real deep history, but yeah, I have seen this before. Okay. So this was my first time watching the movie. Um, I remember it being marketed and it so this movie came out 2014 it was a year after tom cruise had done another sci-fi movie called oblivion it was also the year after the matt damon movie elysium which had matt damon in kind of a in, in like an exoskeleton sort in of a mech suit yeah setup as well so there was sort of this period for a few years where it, it felt like every movie coming out had somebody in a mech suit or something there's it's just something about it, but I remembered the marketing for this and it didn't really grab me at the time. And I think part of it was the title edge of tomorrow didn't tell yeah. me anything about what this movie was supposed to be. And it was kind of, I was also a period of time where I wasn't able to get out to movie theaters as often. So my movie watching had kind of stagnated just a little bit. Um, and so I just sort of passed it by. And then it kind of got out of sight, out of mind for a long time. And I'd hear about it and it'd get mentioned a lot. And people would tell me, yeah, oh, Edge of Tomorrow is great. Edge of Tomorrow. And then I saw the tagline, Live, Die, Repeat, which is a much better title. Um, and, and it was on the poster and it confused so many people when this movie came out. There was weird marketing behind this. Well, and it's funny because uh, then I'm reading about and I remember seeing like DVD and Blu-ray cases where Live, Die, Repeat big up by top and then down yeah. the bottom edge of tomorrow and even like the spine would be like live die repeat 
Yes. <laughs> Very strange. So it was just weird marketing, and it felt like they didn't quite know what they were doing. And the movie had a movie had a big budget. It was a hundred and seventy eight million dollar estimated budget to make this. It made about a hundred million in the U.S., um, which isn't that good uh, when, compared to that budget. Like next to that budget for sure. Um, it did go on to make three hundred something million worldwide. So like it turned a profit. It did okay, um, but it wasn't the big tentpole blockbuster that I think they were kind of hoping that it was. Um, but it did pick up steam on home video. A lot of people then ended up seeing it and uh, loving it. Now, my first try with the movie, and I knew the concept. I had heard that much of it, but I tried not to... I try not to get a movie spoiled for myself. For the most yeah. part, I don't really care about spoilers personally. Like I try not to spoil movies for other people. Um, because I don't want to take that experience away from them. So oftentimes I will preface something by saying, look, I saw this movie. If you don't want me to spoil it, tell me now and we won't discuss anything about it. Um, but I have certain friends that don't care so I can talk to them. I try to avoid them. Uh, but I knew the groundhog day sort of aspect, the time loop aspect of this. I I learned over the years. Um, I gotta say, I had a, I had a good time with this movie. (laughs) This is a, this is a fun action movie. This movie is is fun. I think it stumbles a little bit, and I have um, this could be something that's setting in because I, I notice it more uh, with age. Um, the the shaky cam I have a lot of issue with uh, shaky mm-hmm. cam and the sort of uh, the big battle scenes felt like Transformers, Michael Bay battle scenes. They were a little hard to follow. There was just sensory overload. But the the nuts and bolts of this movie is really fun like um my wife came home from work and i was maybe 15 minutes into this and she goes oh i remember this movie this movie is fun and sat down we blew off dinner and (laughs) and just ate leftovers on the couch uh so we could finish watching this movie we were having a, a really fun time with it it's a really great concept that is uh i don't know this reminds me of one of those like saturday afternoon movies you know what i mean like it just comes on cable and you you're lazing around on the couch and it's just perfect for that yes it's very much a a like saturday afternoon action flick the the story to me is pretty interesting but it's not super deep and it doesn't try to be super deep but it gives you maybe you know a touch more than a b movie would um and there's some the the lead uh, obviously when you have Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt you're you're not a B movie it's a it's a very um, right a big film but like it doesn't try it doesn't take itself too seriously but it also never veers off into the land of parody either right uh, they very much establish like stakes and um, and a goal in this and mm-hmm. they stick to that but they do. They do have fun with it, and I think almost the most parody thing or kind of borderline ridiculous thing in this movie is Bill Paxton's Kentucky accent, and <laughs> I, I I say that with love because I didn't realize how much, I never realized how much I miss Bill Paxton until I see him in something, and I yep. had forgotten he was in this movie as much as he is. And it's like, he's a really fun character in this movie. He's he's a caricature, 
but he, he's chewing scenery and having a good time with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm the same way. I don't think about it. And then I see him in something and I'm like, oh, man, I just miss like him just popping up and things. like, <laughs> yes, I mean, exactly. literally my note, cause the, the movie opens up with a scene with Brendan Gleeson, who is a character actor that I mm-hmm. love. And he's they have, awesome. and that scene was great because it immediately sets the movie up to not be what you expect it to be. Because with all the marketing and everything that I had seen in trailers and, and imagery, I'm expecting this to be like Tom Cruise is this gung-ho uh, guy who just gets caught in this type yeah. time loop. And so that opening scene with the general, immediately Tom Cruise's character is no good at what he's supposed to be doing. And it's kind of refreshing to have Tom Cruise playing that guy. I I actually have a real similar note. I'm like, you never see Tom Cruise playing a coward, mm-hmm. uh, a weakling, anyone who... The, the only time I can think of it is something like Born on the Fourth of July where he's playing like a kid in Vietnam. And, and yeah. that's part of the dramatic arc of that character. But like in an action movie, he's always the most capable guy and the most invincible guy. Mm-hmm. And here he, he's really bad at being a soldier and he dies several times. <laughs> it's um, yeah. It's really, really different for Tom Cruise. And the coward aspect of it, like the second, because yes. you're set up for this whole thing where he's like, I'm going to put you out on the front line with the camera crew. And, and you're thinking, okay, he's going to go for it. And his immediate thing is like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. No, please. yeah, I don't do that. Any, anything but that. Like, and then he tries to blackmail him and like the, the general's like, okay, fine. You see, you're not, you're not going to go to the front line. And then immediately arrest this man. It's like, oh boy! It's, All right, <laughs> his scene, his scenes with Brendan Gleeson, that one, and the one that comes when they come back around to him later, mm-hmm. I think, are so much fun because they are butting heads, and it's two really charismatic people doing it, and especially on the on the second half of the movie when Emily Blunt is there as well. Yes, and she's just, uh, I I don't want to overlook how great she is in this movie because no not at all uh, she's fantastic this could have just been that girl boss action ripley ripoff thing and she actually builds a character in in what she's doing here yeah and what i love coming back to gleason is the first time we meet him tom cruise's uh, you know cage uh william cage bill cage is just he's like almost worthless he's a public relations media guy um He's a coward and all of this stuff. And when he comes back, he's now this like hardened soldier. It's the same day yeah. for Brendan Gleeson. Right. But Tom Cruise is the this hardened, well-trained soldier now. But he's also at a point where he doesn't quite know what to do. And so it's it's like a mirrored image of that first scene while also Tom Cruise being completely different in it. And I loved that. Like right. the, the, di- the dichotomy of those two scenes was a lot of fun. And then having Emily Blunt sitting there in the background with the gun. And the, even the, the quick thing where, Tom, where Cage turns around, he's like, no, look, don't shoot him this time, okay? Let's just... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, they... I, I love the, the, the time loop aspects of that where you get a glimpse of, oh, they've done this before. Like, yeah, we're not seeing their first time walking through this. It's it's always really fun. Yeah. Uh, I had the note of just Bill Paxton because that just made me that just made me happy to see him show up with that mustache sure. and that accent. And just you can tell dude was having a great time 
having, a, having the time of his life for sure. Just getting to go, go full ham. And I loved it. And, um, and I liked that he very easily could have been, even with the time loop aspect of things, he very easily could have been just in the barracks and that's it. But then you get him in the ship and you get him on the ground and we get to see yeah. him doing the same scene over and over. And it's like, he's just doing a different riff on it every time. It's, it's just barely different. All these scenes are just barely different enough to keep you interested without feeling like there's some sort of branching time loop thing going on either like branching timelines. Yeah. There's no, there's no variation in what's happening Yeah, except for what Cruz is bringing in when he's like saying the next line ahead of him. (laughs) Uh, But the, the other, the aspect outside of the movie of Bill Paxton, I liked is now we've gone from seeing him as Hudson, the wise Mm -hmm. ass, uh, uh, PFC and, and talking to, I can't remember their platoon sergeant's name in aliens. Who's like, look into my eye. And, oh uh, yeah. Yep. And now he's that guy. Yes. And Tom Cruise is the, is the, the, the private. And it's almost like this full circle, like the full military career of Bill Paxton <laughs> yes. in these two movies. And it's just, it's so funny to watch him, uh, kind of mature into that role where he can be believable as, as the hard ass, uh, Sergeant. Yeah. While still like he's believable as that hard ass Sergeant while still making you laugh because yeah, still his, having a charisma. It's for sure. still that Bill Paxton charisma. Exactly that. Um, so yeah, he goes from, uh, he's his entire career from PFC Hudson all the way to master Sergeant Farrell. From uh, Science Hill, Kentucky, which was great. I don't know where that is. I don't know if that's even a real city. I don't know if that's a real place. But I want it to be. I want there to be a Science Hill, Kentucky. (laughs) Um, We mentioned Emily Blunt and how good she is. She is fantastic in this. Um, The the introduction to her uh, in the opening scenes, what I liked about that was we learn about her through dialogue first in those opening news things. And then, you know, she's this mythical figure. And as the movie goes on, it's cool because not then I'm remembering back to like that whole thing where, you know, her first day in the suit, she killed hundreds of mimics. Yeah. And now you're realizing partway through, it's like, oh, yeah, because she went through a time. She went through her own time loop of however many tries. She, she played the game over and over. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love that. She she brings a great uh, physicality to the role without her character being sexualized, which I I liked quite a bit. I mean, with the exception of that one yoga pose she does where she bends up to uh to stand yeah. up. She's not like there's never, you know, the tropey thing where like her her armor gets taken off and half of her oh, cop, yeah. half of her, you know, uniform is missing as she's fighting or some dumb stuff like that. Like they never went that she's route. She's not wearing the the black leather uh, black widow suit you yeah. know uh, or or something like that no boob armor. no i think um they they she's pretty buff without losing her femininity mm-hmm. and uh feminine without being sexualized in this movie i feel like the the one uh hiccup i have with that is that the love story between her and cruz just felt completely shoehorned and forced because uh, I get they were getting to know each other, 
But it's always that thing where it's sort of like, I just wish they had just been fellow soldiers together who developed a friendship like this. I, I never bought the the romantic relationship of the two. It's interesting because I'm with you in that I don't buy it as a romantic relationship, but I kind of get this feeling. We never get a sense of how many times Cage went through this loop. We right. get we know her because she said, or we have a rough idea for, for her experience when she says she saw her commanding officer die 300 times. But we never get the full sense of how long was he stuck in this loop. Because we get that montage of his death after death after death as he's training. And the first time around where it's just him having no clue what's going on and slowly figuring it out. And then he meets her. And then it's the second montage of all the times that they're training where it just ends right. with her shooting him in the head. Which also There's made so me laugh shots a lot. To the so, head. <laughs> so good. I did... I was reading a thing where they talked about if they were branching timelines, how many of those branching timelines is she court-martialed for killing a fellow soldier in cold blood exactly. like, in the training room? <laughs> <laughs> but the the romance thing, the interesting thing to me with that was the way they played it was he sees her, and there is that moment of kind of, whoa, when he sees her on the battlefield because she is this mythical figure. But right. then as he gets to know her and he gets to train with her, you start to see, you start to get this inkling like he's developing feelings for her, but it goes, it, it sort of goes in this direction of there is romantic feelings, but it's also like this idea that when he, when we get to the scene in the farmhouse and the garage where he's finally realized, like, I can't save you like no matter what i do you die that's and yeah. i don't want that to happen and it's got that really really heartfelt line where he says you know i wish i didn't know you but i do yeah where i think it kind of passed from being sort of a pseudo romantic relationship to kind of that foxhole soldier respect relationship that that then you know when they go through that final time loop and she kisses him right before they're going to go try to bomb the thing that's less out of a romance and more out of just kind of like this, this flood of emotion, I think more than anything. And that's how I kind of perceive it. Yeah. Cause um, they don't go, you know, anything past that as far as like, like they never sleep together. They never, um, not that he didn't try. That was really funny when he thought he could give her the time loop thing, like an STD. He goes, have you tried everything? And he, <laughs> he, like, he does the little like wiggle his hips uh, move in the mech suit. It's so funny. And she's it's, like, yes, I've tried. <laughs> like, it's so cheese ball. But it's like at the same uh, time, you sort of get like, okay, no, I understand the, the thought process there. But um, I mean, it's not only blunt. It's yeah, you gotta, you gotta take a shot. You shoot sure, your shot, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. You're going to reset the day I, anyway, yeah. so. Um, yeah, there's no consequence, uh, but, um, the, the whole, um, aspect of them getting to know each other and the, the amount of times that he's gone through this day, there is all the montages and all the clips that we see, but there's also a ton more that we don't see like mm -hmm. the farmhouse thing when they find the helicopter and he, he says, we've played out every scenario. There's no way that you, and, and you get a sense of like, oh, they've been to this farmhouse like a hundred times probably. Like yeah. it, and it's just, it's almost like the thing in, um, I brought it up. I can't help compare it, but like 
the thing in Groundhog Day where people have talked about like, you know, uh, Bill Murray, was he in Punxsutawney for a thousand years or something oh, yeah. like that? There's, yeah. That there's this evidence that he like lived several lifetimes there. Um, and it's just sort of like, I, I think it mounts up the more uh, the, the movie goes on, you just realize like, oh, Tom Cruise has been fighting this one day's battle for 10 20 years maybe i don't know it just feels like an infinite time loop uh, really, at a certain point yeah it really does um and i kind of i i dug that because that again that farmhouse scene is the emotional kind of crux of this movie and for it to play out the way it does because we keep getting you know just a little bit further and a little bit further and we finally get to that point and here we, we go into it with the sense of like, okay, they've finally gotten this far. And then we learn, no, 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 they've gotten this far however many times. And she calls him out on right. that. And um, it's a very, it's an emotional scene that then changes the movie after that. Because after this, he's like, all right, well, we got to go with a different tactic now. Because I've tried everything, including letting you die and getting to the dam. And it uh, the thing isn't there. So now we've got to go in a different right. direction. Like he had given up at that point. He had kind of, at, at that was his sort of breaking point in that he was he was done. He's like, well, I can't save her anymore. I'm just going to go ahead and do it, and then it didn't work. And so now he's there is there is that scene where he tries to go without her, mm -hmm. where he he approaches her and then he goes, oh, I'm sorry, sorry to bother you, and then he goes and does it on his own, and um, and yeah, it's just a really like that part of it too i think added to it where it was it kind of bookends the farmhouse scene it's it's that and the initial when they're on the car ride and she's yeah. trying to not talk to him and he's like i already know all this stuff about you i've <laughs> known you he's basically like i've known you for years now at this point right um and and it's just sort of like you get a sense of an actual relationship even if she's not aware of it uh that that he has it on his end yeah, which does actually, because this was based on a book. Um, it's a Japanese novel called All You Need Is Kill that was published in 2004 um, and then got adapted into a manga and uh, eventually this movie. And that kind of mirrors a little bit what happened. So in the book, it's the same characters except that Tom Cruise's character is a Japanese soldier then, and the book is set in Japan. But she's an American um, soldier in Japan. It's Rita. And in the book, she still has the ability to reset the time loops as well. Uh, she didn't lose that. Okay. And there's a moment where um, it ends with her having lost, uh, kind of dropped out of the time loop, but he hasn't because they, they figure out there's something that they have to do um, in order for them to defeat the, the mimics. And so then it becomes a situation where now he remembers her, but she has no memory of him. Okay. And wow. so that's they build, a, yeah. Punch. yeah. And like they build this strong relationship. And then from that point forward at the end, it's like he, he views her as this, you know, um, equal and friend and fellow soldier. And she views him as a stranger. And so it's kind of interesting the way that the book, that the movie doesn't go that route. It did give us a more uplifting ending with everything resetting. And I'm kind of curious. Um, I loved how it ends in the movie because it gives you 
the open-ended of does she remember him or not right which i thought was really cool um it's it's the thing of um you know they wanted this to be a blockbuster a hundred and whatever million dollar movie yep. that they sunk into it they're not going to give it that downer ending you no. know they want that hollywood uh they want you to leave the the theater feeling good and telling people to come see this movie you know and that's just that's just what you get with the blockbuster but i really i really like that book ending <laughs> honestly it's, it's it's a downer but it's uh it it feels more emotional you know it does it does they definitely did change and i know one of the things i was reading was that tom cruise wanted to he really wanted to emphasize some of the comedy of like the dying over and over right while to, to kind of keep it lighter because it's fairly heavy i mean obviously war is heavy stuff and war with aliens and all of that but I, what I liked about it, and I sort of mentioned this earlier, is that it didn't stray too far. It 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 didn't over lean on the comedy, while, but still was like lighter in that way. Because there's there's moments where it's just the ah uh, again, or wait 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 no I'm okay, and then she shoots him anyway, uh, or yeah the rolling under the truck to get away during the um, push ups, the first <laughs> attempt not working, <laughs> which has probably the best bill paxton reaction which is just what were you thinking (laughs) yeah yeah plus the uh, and we'll we'll get to it later but the scream the tom cruise scream when he gets run over by the truck (laughs) it it made it really made me laugh um it's it's a cool story and again it's not super deep but it's deeper than like it can make you think a little bit more because there are kind of levels to this that you could dive into if you want to. It's a very high concept thing. Um, which yeah, the concept is the the standout thing in this movie, I think. Yeah, I'm always a big fan of high concept sci-fi. I love like when you're going to go with sci-fi, go for it, and sometimes go just wild. just do it and don't like. There's no we don't get some scene that uh, over explains where the aliens came from, what they're doing here, what their plan, what their supposed plan is. Um, we don't have the war room scene, right? With like the, the leaders of the world talking about the alien invasion. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or, or any sort of, we don't get a scene that explains the mech suits. They just have them and they work. Uh, the book does, which this is cool. This is the, where adaptation of a story is important because in the book, the mech suits are custom built per person and the way the technology works on them is uh it's like micro electro uh impulses electrical impulses to move things around and give you the super speed and strength and everything but it's like walking on eggshells and trying not to break them at the same time and if you put on someone else's suit you could just break every bone in your body because it's not calibrated for you which conceptually is really really cool but in a movie just doesn't work like you don't have the time to go over that without it being an entire five to 10 minute scene to explain that. And then you ignore it for the rest of the movie. So they just skipped all that. And are just like, now we got mech suits and they got big rail guns on them. That sound exactly like the guns from aliens. And that's it. That's all you need because that's not there's like a lot of aliens crossover <laughs> because all, all of that really cool, like minutia isn't important to the story that this movie is telling. If this were that's a true, series and it's, or like a different movie, that stuff's important. But this one was about get Tom Cruise into the time loop 
and then let's let's figure that part of it out. That's yeah. Uh, th- this is not taking the time for a lot of uh, world building. It just kind of throws you right in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also those mech suits, like in a real world military, that is how they would work. Is that they wouldn't be calibrated to individuals. Correct. It would be a one size fits all. We mass produce these by the lowest bidder, mm-hmm. and it'll the battery will run out exactly when you don't need it to. <laughs> it, right. it is kind of all the things you see in here, and it did make it feel uh, very real, like the idea of booby trapping yours with claymore mines because you know eventually the suit's going to let you down and you're yeah. going to get overrun and yep. um, uh, yeah. uh, these kind of uh, uh, weird things. It's like, it's it, going it, to work it made it mostly for the, for mostly, the most part. Yeah. So the other cool thing is um, her reason for, in, in the book, it's a battle axe that she carries instead of the, like, the big sword. The big um, sword. Yeah. But it's the same concept. And her reasoning in the book is that guns jam and they're, they notoriously jam. So she carries that as a, as a better weapon. Um, in the movie, it's just kind of more, she's just a badass. Like she don't need no right. guns. Uh, even though she's got the ones, the wing guns, which those were really cool where they'd fold. Those, those they were would cool. be like wings yeah. that would fold up or unfold. Um, the suits that they used in the movie too, and credit to them on this. Uh, I have to give Doug Lyman uh, and Tom Cruise are, are, most of the ones I, I was reading about that kind of pushed for it, they made them. They're practical suits that they were wearing for the most part. There's probably some CG extensions to it and extra bits, but they sure. wanted them to look as real as possible because they were originally going to do them all mocap. They were going to do motion capture and add them in later, um, and they wanted the more authenticity to it, <laughs> which also meant that they weighed like 90 pounds a piece. Um, I was going to say, like, that, that cannot have been uh, a fun day on set. So, yeah, no, uh, uh, apparently, those. yeah, apparently Emily Blunt, like, just started crying the first time she put it on because it was so heavy and she wasn't sure she could so do heavy, anything yeah. in it. To, to which Tom Cruise just kind of looks at her and it's like, just, uh, I, I can't repeat what he said on the show. But uh, it was enough to get her to, like, it was so unexpected from him that she just started laughing and uh, and was fine after that apparently, but it's uh it's just it's an extra layer that yes it adds budget to the movie, but it also adds a better visual look to it because I think as you mentioned this movie's almost ten years old, and quite honestly if these were CG motion captured suits from ten years ago the amount of them that they would have. I do feel like that wouldn't have aged quite as well. There's something about that tactile nature of seeing Tom Cruise in that ridiculous suit trying to run, Um, which we did get Tom Cruise sprinting. Um, We got, (laughs) we got him in the suit. We got him sprinting in the movie uh, in both the suit and in the uh, first part where he tries to run out of the, the general's office. Oh Um, yeah. Yeah. It's we got <laughs> so we got we got the Tom Cruise sprint. We got the Tom Cruise uh, riding a motorcycle. Yep, and uh, and there was also a helicopter in the movie. So, you know, we hit yeah. all the yeah. all the true the cruise tropes. We got him jumping out of a plane. Yep. Uh, I don't know if we got uh, uh, shirtless Tom Cruise. I don't know if we got laughing. You know the the Tom. <laughs> you know the Tom Cruise laugh. You know. Uh, I don't know if we got all the all the moves, but um, no, yeah, not, yeah, not we got we got the greatest them. hits. 
We did. Yeah. We did get the greatest hits. And, of course, he did all his own stunts. I mean, that's of course. course for him at this point. Emily Blunt did all her own stunts, except in the reshoots, because they did the reshoots a couple months later, and by then she had she was in the very early stages of her pregnancy. And so... Come on, man up. God, you, you know... What, <laughs> what's funny about it is she gets back for the reshoots, and then she suddenly doesn't want to do the stunts, and it's sort of confusing a few folks, and she finally... Uh, she says she went to Tom Cruise and was like, yeah, um, I'm I'm pregnant, so I probably shouldn't do those. And she's like, basically, my husband, one friend of ours, and Tom Cruise knew that I was pregnant at that point. Right. It's like, well, I mean, but... Um, yeah, no, I get it. But... Can I talk I, about Emily Blunt just real quick? Yes, like, absolutely. I, uh, I, I really like her in this movie. A, a big blind spot uh, for me until recently was Sicario. And I just watched Sicario a couple months ago, and she is freaking amazing in that. Like, she's one of these actors, like, I knew she had chops. I love her in A Quiet Place. I've seen her in a handful of things, and I'm like, oh, Emily Blunt's great. But I saw her in Sicario, and it completely changed how I saw her as an actor. I think I think she is, uh, she's playing a real tragic and tortured person in Sicario and uh I think she she does it amazingly and she's in a cast full of just absolute heavyweights in that movie and um she just blows me away and and then to come see her in uh I love her in a quiet place and in this mm -hmm. and see how she does in like genre you know action yeah and you know, it's like she's not looking at it like, well, this is a dumb alien movie. I'm going to phone this in. She's doing like real character work in this movie, you know, and the, the that that farmhouse scene I know is is the kind of go to emotional scene. But I, I think through all of this, when she's kind of comes to realize who uh, Tom Cruise is and she's like, oh, you start taking him seriously. You see her. You see it all play out without her saying a whole lot. I think she's yeah. I think she's an amazingly underrated actor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and versatile too. Like she's not just Yeah. Some sometimes actors um get caught not, not just like typecasting, but it's like they just kind of do the same stuff. Uh you get the rom-com actors and you get and sure. we're seeing more and more actors do try to branch out and some of it is us as an audience need to be receptive to that. Um, you know, yes, it can be kind of silly to think of Seth Rogen in like an action film, but there's nothing to say that he couldn't do that as an actor. Um, it's just, you gotta, you gotta see it on screen, but you also have to be willing to see it on screen kind of thing. It's Seth sort of, Rogen has done some great dramatic roles, you know, that nobody 10 years ago would ever think that mm -hmm. he would be doing, you know, like it's, it's true. Yeah. And, and I love that like Emily Blunt has, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff from the Wolfman remake to like uh, voice work in Nomeo and Juliet. I totally forgot about that movie. <laughs> uh, I I remember it because we recently on another podcast I do Gore we did the original Gore. Wolfman, the 1941 Wolfman. Oh and yeah. The subject of the remake came up. Um, but like all sorts of stuff. I mean, she was in things like The Devil Wears Prada. She was in uh, uh, Looper. I liked her in Looper. Um, another oh, genre of film uh, she's in. How did I forget that? Yes, she's great in Looper, and I love that movie so much. But she has like a there's a presence she has that 
is there's a confidence that she can bring to a role, even when she's doing something. Um, I, don't, I don't know. It's a charisma that she's got that is just it shows on screen and whatever it is that she's doing, but it sort of adapts to the roles that she's playing, which I really, really liked. Um, Absolutely. You know, even, and also she was in a Muppet movie. So she was Miss Piggy's receptionist in the Muppets from 2011, which immediately uh, makes her better. But Sicario, yeah. you mentioned, um, she did uh voice work for my little pony, the movie um, Mary Poppins returns. I loved her. Honestly, I loved her as Mary Poppins in that. I thought that I was, honestly have still not seen that movie, but uh, it was uh, it was fun. It has less to do with me thinking that movie will be bad, and more of I cling to the original Mary Poppins movie as the greatest thing Disney's ever done, and I'm like, man, I just don't want to be disappointed by <laughs> by, a, by a, a sequel. You know, it's if you go into it not expecting it to be that original movie and kind of sure. don't don't you know have that movie on its pedestal do what you're going to do with that this is a great love letter to it and they they earnestly were trying to do something that i think they did a pretty good job i've heard with. it's really good I, I i haven't even heard bad word of mouth about it you know it's just yeah but uh, I, I understand you know, that there yeah. are some sometimes those there's those certain movies where you're just like you're tentative about it you're, ten, you're tentative to like to to open up to it because that original is so precious. And like Mary Poppins yeah. is a great one for that because Mary Poppins is a fantastic movie. It's just a classic for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, I really, I really enjoyed Emily Blunt in this. And then you had like the whole J squad uh, where a little, if I have a complaint, it's that they're a little underutilized. Um, and they're a little generic. They, they feel yeah. like they are the, uh, the dollar store versions of the crew from aliens mm -hmm. again to come back around to that. It's almost like, Oh, we got the, the sassy uh, woman who's supposed to be like Vasquez and, yeah. and, uh, and, but, you know, you gotta love the, the big dude who's naked in his mech suit. <laughs> and, uh, that, that, you know, they try and up. give some dimension to there's the young uh, black dude. Who's like pretending to be someone else who, was killed in combat and you know they're trying to give some depth to these to these crew but you're right they're just they're not there enough for you to really latch on to them um, no it, it they, was they, like it was cool to come back to them and bring them in for the final scene unfortunately in order to really give them enough screen time this movie's gonna end up two and a half hours long and right the, this you, i don't i don't know if i could make it through two and a half hours of this movie like the pacing that it has is just about right. And it comes in just a, a tick under two hours. And I think that that's good. About an hour. 50. I think that's pushing it, but it, it lands just about right. You're, you're yeah. right. Another half hour of this would have been tedious. I think. Now, I think if you take this concept and you had stretched it out over, say a, like a mini series type thing there, you can develop this J squad. Um, because I think, and I think that the actors they had would have been fun. Franz uh, Drama, I think is how you pronounce that, um, Ford. I love him. I've loved him since I saw him in uh, um, DC's Legends of Tomorrow. And then I saw him again in Attack the Block um, a couple of years ago. Uh, and Attack the Block keeps coming up again and again. <laughs> and I've not seen that movie 
in years. And I'm like, I just need to revisit that movie. I just need to bite the bullet and, and watch it. I remember really liking it. And now people are like, oh, this guy's in it. This guy's in it. These people have gone on to be famous who were nobodies at the time. Yeah. So you didn't take note of them. Mm -hmm. And it is, I, man, it's like a, a deja vu thing with that movie. <laughs> it just keeps coming up in my life. So, But he's just one of those. He's another guy. He is somebody that I feel like um, he and John Boyega both deserve to get more roles because they have... A or real, better roles. Yeah, they have a real good charisma um, about them and a good screen presence. I love seeing them. Um, I, I've, it cracked me up. The my Probably my favorite, like the, the thing that made me laugh the most outside of Tom Cruise getting run over by the truck was when he goes back to them at the end of the movie uh, to the J-Squad and he's explaining to everybody who they are and like what he knows about them. And he's like, Kimmel... You fight balls out, literally. Literally, because yes. <laughs> he just goes into, <laughs> into battle in a jockstrap, and it just. Uh, he says, "I gotta be free." It's the funniest <laughs> thing. <I> it's, <laughs> it's such a silly tropey thing, but I it just it made me laugh. And then for Tom Cruise to deliver the line that way, and there's there's again that leaning into the comedy without it being slapstick, letting it be yeah, funny without like, overdoing that balance. It. I, I think really, really well. And uh, it's kind of when you look back at like Doug Lyman, the director, mm -hmm. like you forget how varied his career has been. I forgot he was the director of Swingers. Right. You know, before he did the Bourne movies and before he, he got into doing like more dramatic. He does this movie with Tom Cruise uh, a few years ago, American Made, about mm -hmm. the the pilot who smuggles for the cia and that movie's like just a good kind of biopic drama um and and i just his career is all over the place so i think he's really able to balance like here's the my comedy chops and here's my action movie chops and and kind of figure out how to not lean too far in either direction i i think i think it's a really delicate balance he strikes here yeah you know i always think of him as the director of the born identity um because he did that first movie and they didn't bring the him back before uh greengrass took yeah. over yeah um but i and and i i'm the same way i forget that he did swingers which is so different from the born movie and then he turns around and he does um couple years after the born identity he does mr and mrs smith which is like oh, that's yeah. kind of his first sort of action comedy uh real mesh and and you see I some of like that, that in this. movie uh, i do too it's 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 a still kind of a silly movie but i think it's so much fun well it's a movie that knows what it's trying to be kind of like edge of tomorrow yeah. kind of like uh it, it knows exactly what it yeah. wants to be which is kind of just popcorny dumb silliness with some fun action in it. And and the thing that Lyman does really well, I think, is stage action. Yes, the, the, the stuff on the beach in this gets really hectic and there is a little bit of shaky cam in there. But I also think, like, in a way, that's on purpose because he's sort of redoing and doing his own uh, PG-13 take on, on um, you know, the Saving Private Ryan type Saving Private scene. Ryan, yeah. Um, so, but, like, the guy knows how to do action 
and and make it in such a way that you are engaged in what's going on without losing perspective on where things are going on. You like you yeah. you usually can figure out the geography of his scenes and where everybody is supposed to be. Even in this sure. which this movie was kind of coming out that that early 2010s to like 20 it's like 2008 to 15 there was this period where a lot of stuff had very muted colors and very muted palettes. Yeah. Um, and this one does have that too, especially the battle scenes are uh, a lot of browns and, and dark grays uh, on a gray back sky. Um, yeah. It just sort of what, you know, it was the visual style going on at the time. Um, and so uh, it's it can be tougher to kind of figure things out, but I think Lyman does a good job of sort of keeping you in the moment of, of all the scenes that are going on. So I, I appreciate that. And he Lyman does. knows his geography and he knows how to show it without uh, a lot of tangential stuff screwing screwing up shot to shot. Yeah, uh, it's funny you talk about the color palettes because Austin and I watched um, Pandorum from I think it's like 2008. It's uh, like Dennis Quaid. It's a oh yeah Pandorum. Movie. Yep, yep. Um, and and that whole thing is shot with like a brown filter. It has like this. It, looks like a nine inch nails video yeah. and i remember we talked about it on the show and i was like you can tell just by the the color palette of this movie exactly when this movie came out like mm-hmm. like this this small time frame where that was it is just these high saturation filters that took all the color out of the room <laughs> and, and it was it's uh it's real specific yeah, and that's that same era. It's at 2009 was Pandorum, and it's just for whatever yeah. reason that period of time we we desaturated everything and made everything these. I don't want to say boring, but kind of boring color palettes. It was and like trying to look real gritty all the time. There was um, an over an overly gritty nature to everything. And looking back, it just hasn't aged well at all, really. No, um, I do. As far as color palettes go. Yeah, I do like when things can, like, not everything has to be overly stylized, but I think just a more natural look to things um, can work. Unless what you're doing is like The Crow, where you're mimicking a black and white comic. And so back then they were doing it on film, so they were doing the silver, uh, what is it, like silver bypass, I think it's called, or something, where the way they would wash the film before during development. It's been a long time since I worked in a dark room, but yeah, I, it's, there's something about the, the silver, uh, I can't remember the name of the process, but it, the, 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 in the chemical, like the silver nitrate or whatever it is that they, they up that, to give it a different finish. Yeah. Yeah. So there is that, but I feel like, and, and especially as, you know, kind of that 08 to 15 era was also the boom of digital the switch from film being the main thing to digital uh, photography being the main thing in films that um, you know, like you feel that uh, that there's something about the desaturated nature of like a film thing. Like uh, the crow is one that I like to use because it had that look, but there's other movies that did it too versus the way it's done with uh, especially earlier digital stuff. I remember, um, that was my one of my issues with um, Miami Vice. The movie was the that Michael Ma- Mann movie. Yeah, yeah, was that Michael Mann did that kind of a? He was trying to create that look, but in early digital, it just doesn't look great. 
No. By the time of this movie, uh, ten uh, years later, they, I had they got several better issues with, it. with the Miami Vice movie. But uh, I did yeah. too. Um, but they, you know, it, overall, I think the look of this is pretty good, and it gets better when you get away from the beach scenes. the The color gets a little bit better um, right, right up until the end. That that end at night, you know, uh, very CG heavy. You can tell a lot of this was shot on sound stages. Um, which oh yeah. It's fine. Like it, it, it gave it a good look, uh, and a, and a yeah. You can't really go flood the Louvre. Uh, no, unfortunately, you film there. You, you kind of got to do it that way. They, they uh, frown I, on that. I give, I give some of the the desaturation a pass, especially in like the beach and on the army bases and stuff. Um, just because it had that, a lot of the stuff had that Star Wars quality of like this is really old, yeah, beaten up gear. Like the the weird transports they were on and the mech suits, I liked that they were a little tarnished and colorless oh. and and kind of dirty looking because that's you know it just it it added some texture that felt authentic to what they were trying to portray. Yeah, uh, but you're right when they get out in the farmhouse and and they are driving in the country, you get a little more greenery and it is like okay, we're like we're getting back to like a living world now and and that felt better. Yeah, because you definitely on the base and on the beach, it's that feeling of like no, they're losing this war. Like the and the humans are to right. the mimics, they are straight up losing this war. Um that's I guess they don't I don't remember any explicit uh like dates being shown, but it's supposedly the meteor hit in like 2015 and the the movie takes place in 2020 um in this timeline. So They've been at it for five years, and they're basically just, you know, getting their butts handed to them. Um, yeah, I, I was really confused about that because there's the there's the part where he goes into the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically skips the war that day. Yeah, and there's these old guys in there talking about, oh, I was on the beach at Normandy, and I was, you know, and I'm just sort of like, wait, how old are these guys? Like they would be like. It's it's a it's a weird timeline. Um, was it that, or were start... they talking about their? I think they were talking about their dad or uncle, maybe. So that might have oh, made, okay. That might have worked a little. Maybe bit uh, more. may I could have I maybe I misheard that, but yeah, because that that threw me off. I'm like, is this supposed to take place in like an <laughs> alternate now? Like what? Like what is that? But yeah, um, there were a couple of characters that, that matters. Like there was a character in the end that I don't remember from any other part of the movie. Uh, and it was the first guy that was on the, the rail guns in the, when they're flying in on their transport into the Louvre and there was oh, yeah. like a Japanese character maybe on like where you see um, Ford ends up getting on those guns afterwards. But the right. first guy that was on there, there's he's credited in the, in the movie as Takeda. I don't remember him in any scene prior to that. I, Neither do I. I <laughs> I think there were like there was like J Squad had like six named characters, mm-hmm. but when they go out for a formation run, there's like thirty of them. <laughs> yeah, so it is just sort of like uh, okay, but and like, uh, you know, it's the and all the rest. Yeah, uh, the Gilligan's <laughs> Island thing. Um, <laughs> and I was I, I just I was watching that scene, and I'm like, who's this dude? Like. 
we haven't seen this guy yet. Uh, all right, cool. Um, we'll just go with that. <laughs> yeah, I guess he just part of the crew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you catch the in the opening um, newsreel kind of thing where they were skipping back and forth? Did you catch the uh, War Games background on what Tom Cruise was in front of? I did not. No. Apparently, they were they grabbed some backgrounds from War Games and, and of NORAD and threw it behind him. On one oh, of that's those, fantastic! Which I thought was pretty fun. Um, yeah, this is very much Groundhog Day meets meets Starship Troopers. That's the perfect way to put it. The writers of this, so there were a few different writers. It started off as a spec script um, when they they kind of optioned the the novel, um, and that got sold to the studio, and then it went through several rewrites. Um, but two of the writers in particular that um, are credited, one is Jez Butterworth. Um, and he's written uh, things like, did you ever see a movie called The Last Legion with Colin Firth? Uh, no. It's, no, it, I don't know that one. It's a smaller movie from 2007. Um, it's actually uh, from the Dino De Laurentiis company. But uh, it's, it, it's, like a, it's basically a B movie, but it's about um, one of the last emperors of Rome while it's being sacked by the Goths taking off with his uh like his protector and his teacher and everybody and they head to Britannia where the last legion of roman soldiers are um to get the caesar safe the kid it's a, it's a kid um but it's a, he wrote he co-wrote that it was kind of an interesting little movie it's it's a fun one he wrote this um get on up uh which um has oh the james brown movie the james brown movie black mass he wrote he co-wrote the screenplay uh, oh, I love Black Mask. Yeah, um, he was one of the many writers that was in uh, involved in Spectre uh, for James Bond, Ford versus Ferrari. <laughs> okay. um, so, like, he's written some stuff that's pretty decent. And then the other one, and he came in kind of later in the project, and he's worked with Tom Cruise a few times. Christopher McQuarrie, who uh, has uh, yeah. written, um, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, The Usual Suspects. McQuarrie wrote. Um, and uh, but he also wrote The Way of the Gun, Valkyrie. Um, he had worked with Tom Cruise on uh, Jack Reacher, which he wrote and directed. Macquarie did, and then okay. he also uh, wrote and directed the last two Mission Impossibles, and the newest right. one that hasn't come out yet is also Macquarie. And there's a little I can feel a little bit of that Macquarie kind of uh, stuff in some of the moments in this because he does do a pretty good job of balancing humor and action. But I did love this quote where he at one point was thinking about um, involving a twist with the mimics kind of figuring out Cage's attack plan in Paris. And so resetting time during that, the mimics doing that. But he was eventually was like, I had to scrap it because by that point you were just too exhausted with everything going on. You're getting too complicated too late in the movie at that point. Yeah. But um... yeah, that's like a that and that to me is a sign of a good writer where because the story guy in me is like, no, that's cool. Add that twist in. But then you think about it and it's like, no, we've we've already taken you on this roller coaster far enough. At some point, we've got to slow things down for the end. Um, Everyone has that creative side where they just want to get wilder and wilder. And then you have to balance that with the side of you that goes, I want to sell this, too. So we have to (laughs) we have to pull this back a little bit. I want people to watch this and enjoy it. So, I, I want yeah, I want people to have a good experience and and uh, yeah, um, I, I didn't realize he had written um, uh, Valkyrie. 
Yeah. Which is, uh, I know, let's not pretend like Tom Cruise isn't some brand of problematic and Brian Singer directed that movie. Uh, so I feel like that movie has been sort of pushed to the side and it's one of those things like, oh, we don't want to acknowledge this too much. But just taken as a movie, I think Valkyrie is a really solid movie. I really like that movie a lot. In a vacuum for his In a work, vacuum, yes. <laughs> the work that Brian Singer has put on screen, I very much like. Whether it's The Usual Suspects, the first couple of X-Men films, Valkyrie, him as a person, no. Um, uh, yeah. You know, much like uh, yeah. Kevin Spacey, unfortunately, and and whatnot. Uh, but they've done very good work. So I'm with you on that. Like, Valkyrie is one of those that if you can, if you can separate yourself from uh, who the person is that made it. Your mileage varies a lot on all of that stuff. Absolutely. You know? It's up to you as an individual, I think. Um, but uh, but yeah, Macquarie wrote that. Uh, if you ever get a chance, The Way of the Gun is an interesting movie. Um, I don't know that I would call it great, but I think that it's... I enjoyed it uh, for what it was, which is... It was kind of almost a samurai film, but set in... Okay. Set with like... Uh, it's Benicio Del Toro and Ryan Philippi, and they're... Um, I think they're, if I remember right, they're like hitmen of some sort. But it's got uh, it's got them in it. Um, Jeffrey and Juliette Lewis, I think, are both in it. Um, and uh, it's got mob stuff and and all. It, it it's an interesting movie. Um, yeah, Juliette Lewis, who I think is playing, she's playing like a surrogate mother in the movie or something's going. It's it's odd. It's a little out there, but I I thought it was better than a lot of people. Uh, did it, like I, you know, critics gave it. It's like a forty-nine meta score, so it didn't uh, didn't rate very well with critics. But I I enjoyed it. it isn't uh, also came out in two thousand, so uh, I think James Caan might be in it too, if I remember. Is it anything like uh, like Ghost Dog, that Forrest Whitaker movie? Mm-hmm. It's like a samurai uh, a samurai movie crossed with a hitman movie. In a way, yes, but this is more like where Ghost Dog was very much uh, samurai influenced. This is more like, like blatantly, yeah, yeah. This is more like tonally uh, influenced. This is okay. this would be like comparing um, the Magnificent like the Seven, westerns. yeah, like the Magnificent yeah. Seven and Seven Samurai, where sure. you're taking that samurai storytelling uh, style and transposing it into something else. So it does have a little bit of that Western feel to it as well. Um, I vaguely remember when that movie came out and, uh, but I never, I never saw it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll look for it streaming somewhere and, uh, and give it a look. I think it's worth it. And I think Macquarie too, with, uh, rogue nation and mission impossible fallout, uh, has done some really good stuff. Those are good, like real good. Well, those are fun movies. Um, the, the mission impossible movies are, I always describe them as, it's the franchise. I go to all of them. I watch them. I have a great time. I leave the theater and I don't think about them anymore. <laughs> I could not tell you what stunt happens in which movie, but I know I've had a great time watching all of like from from like three on. I, I really do. I have a great time. I see a lot of them in the theater. Uh, and then I just don't ever think about them again <laughs> until I see them again. And uh, 
That sounds like a dig, but I really, I don't mean it that way. I think they're just fun experiences that you're having at the time. The Mission Impossible movies, for me, I feel like, and and honestly, I can sit down and watch any of them, um, even one and two. Um, Two being my least favorite, but it's not so much because it's a bad movie. It's just not a... It's not a good Mission Impossible movie. It's a great John Woo movie. No, it's not. As a as just a straight John Woo action flick, I think it's fine. Um, as but, an American John Woo movie, it's okay, fine. fair. Yeah, an American uh, John Woo. There's a, there's a different school of John Woo, though. You're yeah. you're right. No, you're you're not wrong there. But but it's still watchable. If somebody if it if I was sure. scrolling through channels and it was a Saturday afternoon, I'm like, oh, Mission Impossible. Eh, why not Mission Impossible Two? It's got Do Gray Scott in it. Um, but the mission impossible movies are kind of like a, a good burger. You don't like when you have, when you go out somewhere and you get a real good hamburger, cheeseburger, whatever it is, you enjoy it. It's amazing, but you don't then crave and think about that later on necessarily. You don't write home about it. Yeah. It's, but then when you're back at that place, you're like, there. Oh, that's right. That burger was good. And I'm going to have exactly, another one. That's a great way to put it, man. So, I, I enjoy the hell out of them. And plus, you know, the Mission Impossible 4 is the one with the Burj Khalifa where he's climbing the building on the outside of the building. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In uh, in, in the UAE. And that one, just the the stones on Tom Cruise to do that stunt himself. Even if he's not, you know, actually 300 stories up or whatever it is, he's only... 20 sure. like still just come on man and it has my favorite uh probably my favorite ethan hunt moment when he's hanging from the rope and he can't he doesn't have enough to make it and jeremy renner's character is like you're you don't have enough rope and he just looks at him and he's just like no shit no shit is <laughs> kills me every time it's, whenever whenever you see the unflappable character <laughs> kind of let it down like the uh, the moment I always go to is in Temple of Doom when they're closing in on <laughs> Indy on the rope bridge, and he just goes, "Ah, oh, shit!" Yeah. You know, like he's just, you know, he's finally hit the hit the limit, and I just, I think that's just, you just see it just for a second. They just let you barely see it, and mm-hmm. I think that's perfect. It reminds you that they're human beings at the same time. Yes, um, but yeah, Edge of Tomorrow. I think a better title would have helped this movie to be to do better in the box yeah. office now there is Less confusing marketing um yeah. and and just i i think the the days of just marketing a a movie based on hey tom cruise is in this <laughs> and expecting that to float it when the rest of your marketing is wait what's this movie called again mm-hmm. I, I i think th- yeah there's there's a lot of weird stuff in the ether around this movie because um, I expect that this movie would have been huge. I was really surprised you hadn't seen it uh, around gamers because the movie is a video game. It yeah. is it is meant to mock playing a video game level yep. over and over and over again. In fact, and side the... quests and picking up batteries from you know it's, yeah. it's all of these things. And you're like, if you had marketed this to gamers, like it. It would have been the first, like probably the best video game movie ever that's not even based on a video game. You know, it, it's funny because a couple of years before, about five years before this movie came out, was that movie with Gerard Butler called Gamer. 
that was kind of marketed in oh, that yeah. way. Uh, it's not as good of a movie, but it's very much, it's the B movie version of what this is trying to be, which is something that, that took the video game idea. This, in this one, they're, um, they're prisoners, I think, and they're, they're being controlled by gamers. So there's actually like people playing the video game are controlling these like avatars essentially. And then something happens and he kind of breaks out of that and it's, it's a little different, so it's a it's a different type of high concept sci fi, but like it wants to go in that direction, and I feel like yeah, it, this movie Edge of Tomorrow needed to be marketed more in that direction, and I think they could have found because even the the writer of the original novel said that he was influenced by video games and being able to replay a level over sure. and over and get it right. I mean, it's undeniable, really. So I I do I, I'm glad that I saw this because I do think that it's worth seeing. Um, it's also worth capturing a few clips of because <laughs> they were great. I got a lot of Bill Paxton. Um, great. Even even though his screen time isn't that long, like when you first meet him and he uh, he immediately says, "We're fixing to invade France." <laughs> we're fixing to invade France. That's only Bill Paxton delivers something like that, and you can you can hear the smirk. That he has while oh, he's yeah. saying that. Oh, he's he's like the shit-eating grin vocally <laughs> in most of the things he's saying. Yes. You know, like it's 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 perfect. Uh, this one I just labeled T minus. What T minus all S H out? Oh yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, after he makes his uh, the J Squad eat their playing cards from their game, which that was a oh, fun yeah, gag yeah. that they did over and over. Um, right. My favorite one being when Cruz just runs in, quick covers up the cards, and just gives him a wink. Like they have no idea yeah. who this yeah, dude yeah. is, and he does that. That that one got me. But uh, you might call that notion ironic. I might keep that one. Just calling that notion ironic. Yeah, you could get some use out of that. I think so. Um, what's this one? Uh, oh, believe. <laughs> I got a couple of exchanges between uh, Tom Cruise and Bill Paxton. You're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. No, I'm not. <laughs> Just very matter of fact. No, I am not. Um, oh, my favorite, uh, my new favorite city or new favorite town in Kentucky. Why well, they call it Science Hill? Never asked. Don't care. <laughs> Never asked. Don't care. And it was at that moment that I'm like, oh, he doesn't like him. Okay. Now I know where we're going. Um... You mentioned the uh, the no nonsense female uh, soldier who's basically Vasquez. Um, oh yeah, and she does have this great line when they're running, when they're doing their PT. Why don't you two get yourselves a nice hot cup? Shut the hell up. <laughs> I just uh, I'm always tickled with with, with dialogue like that. Uh, lines fun like, banter in this yeah. movie for sure. Yeah, like a warm glass of shut the hell up. Um, another thing, so there's a few things that I will always capture in any movie when I'm watching. There'll be laughs, um, forced laughs or just like really good laughs. Um, they will be odd sounds or screams. Uh, I have a few of both of those, but also little things like some bitch just getting some bitch. bitch. Oh man. Um, this might be my favorite cruise delivery in it. You're all 
all doomed! You're doomed! Is that when they're dragging him off uh, to the psych ward? Uh, yeah. Or the first time he, uh, yeah. The first time he came back and told him about stuff, and it just smash cut to them dragging him. He's like, "You're all doomed." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just losing it. Perfect. Uh, oh, this was the emotional moment. I wish I didn't know you. Oh, that's harsh. Yeah. I wish I didn't. It really it, is, and and it's it's delivered well. And her reaction to it is pretty incredible. Oh, Tom Cruise is an actor when he wants to be. When, you know, like, he's turned in some great performances. And even in something uh, not as dramatic, more of an action movie like this, I, I think he's really capable of of dialing that in and delivering a line like, I wish I didn't know you and making you believe this guy's heartbroken that he can't save this woman. Yeah. Yep. And again, that was, that was the moment where it didn't feel like it was because of a romantic interest. It was just more of that exact thing. I can't save right now. I can't, I've been trying so hard and doing so much to try and get you through all this. And I just can't. Um, so yeah, that was, there was that one. And then, okay. Laughs. There's a, and this is, I want to say these are all kind of in sequence when he first is on the beach. Um, and it's just, it's just Tom Cruise silly laughs. Like <laughs> that was in the general's office. That's what that was. Um, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, but then on the beach you get, <laughs> that's, that's that tired laugh. That's the, yeah. oh, I just survived that. <laughs> Going hysterical, oh. yeah. And also, because <laughs> that one's just, oh. that was the loud one. That's I the think Oprah's couch laugh. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I'm gonna, I gotta relabel that one, Oprah's couch laugh. Um, and then, because it just made me giggle when he rolls under the truck and the first time and the camera oh, yeah. follows him and the camera keeps going and you hear that crunch and just <laughs> as he gets run over and then you hear and the a Wilhelm. same is a little Wilhelmy and then you hear the same one later on when during his training montage when he's getting just thrown around that training center by those bots oh yeah and you hear <laughs> and that was that was where they were they were leaning into the comedy in those moments they were really making oh, for sure. like just the getting to do the, all the creative ways they can hit him and throw him around that room or have him like get broken. And then she just walks up and calmly pulls the pistol out, and shoots him and resets him. him. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Also, uh, a great introduction to her characters. Her first line is come and find me when you wake up. Oh yeah. No, they, um, that she makes the connection of what, yep. He, what he is or who he is or what he's going through and, uh, and recognizes that and has that wherewithal to say, you have to come explain this to me. Like that's all so good. Um, as another layer on top of, uh, I mean, all we know about her up to that point is that the propaganda around her, she's on posters and, and, um, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, that she has that insight. I think that's a great moment. Yeah, that one. And then, like, 
what is it when they're talking to uh, the the scientist and they're like, yeah, we oh, meet yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> we meet on the beach tomorrow. This is when this all right. happens. Right, right. <laughs> uh, time jokes, always good. Uh, no, the, this is a fun. This is a fun movie. I'm kind of. I mean, it took me almost nine years after it released to see it, but I'm glad that I did. This is a. You you nailed it perfectly earlier uh, in saying that it is a um, Saturday afternoon uh, little action flick. Um, I, yeah. and, and I think that's right in – that's not a knock on it, and that's right in kind of Doug Lyman's wheelhouse for me. Like when I'm think, when I when I think of watching The Bourne Identity or Mr. and Mrs. Smith or now this movie, like they are that, eh, you know what, I'm bored. I just want to watch something that's just like cool, you know, a, a fun little action movie. Doesn't have to have like this has obviously world level stakes, but it's such a small story being told. And like Mr. Yeah. and Mrs. Smith is a couple that also happen to be assassins that don't know that each other are assassins. Like it's such a silly concept, but like I kind of enjoyed it. And one of the things I liked about the Born Identity um, was that it was because it was the first in that series, things hadn't gotten so big and convoluted yet. Right. It was a it was a small it was a personal story. Yeah, um, and I'll man I'll put on any of those original Born movies, the original three, anytime, <laughs> anytime they come on TV, anytime I just need something to watch, I'll watch a Born movie any day. Oh sure, there there I I would say I watch, I watch one in three probably the most Identity and Ultimatum Supremacy is yeah is still good, uh, but it's a little... The shaky cam in that bugs me more than it does in Ultimatum. Like, it's almost like Paul Greengrass figured out to pull back at least a little bit a little by bit, the time yeah. he made Ultimatum. I can't watch those or discuss them with a friend of mine, though, because he gets seething anger when he thinks of those movies. He Really? He was such a fan of the books. Oh, yeah. loved them, would not stop talking about them. I sat next to him in a theater in Orlando, Florida, watching The Bourne Supremacy when it came out in theaters. And, like, I'm watching the movie with a passing knowledge of Jason Bourne. Um, I think I had read... I had read a Robert Ludlum book by that point, but it wasn't the Bourne book. It was called The Jansen Directive. Um, but I was, you know, I was having an okay time with it, and, and I could feel the rage pouring off of him for that entire oh, movie. Wow. So... Uh, that, that, that might color my thoughts on born supremacy, just a touch. Um, were you, but, were you in the city walk theater? I have to ask in, uh, uh, in Orlando, uh, uh, the one outside of universal studios, this, uh, I went to that theater a few times, but that wasn't where I saw born. Yeah. Um, I saw born at a different, it was an, I want to say it was like an AMC theater in downtown okay. Warner park maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't um, know where Warner park is, but yeah, I've been to that, uh, that theater. In fact, that's where I saw Spider-Man too. I saw, I saw Hannibal there Ooh, and yeah. it was the same weekend that, do you remember a movie called 3000 miles to Graceland? I do. Uh, it was, that movie was opening that weekend <laughs> and Christy and I walked into the lobby and it was full wall to wall <laughs> Elvis impersonators. Oh it was the most <laughs> surreal experience at <laughs> a movie theater I've ever had. I'm like, what? the hell is going on here oh, it was insane that's crazy <laughs> um oh one last thing on this movie is it does the uh the tropey trope of keys and the visor of the car 
Oh, yeah. Where have everybody you, leaves their keys. Have you ever known a single person to ever leave the keys to their car in the visor? Uh, honestly, growing up where I grew up, we did used to do that if we were dropping off a car for somebody. I lived in a very small rural town. A lot of times we left the keys in our cars overnight. It was a very different time in a very different place. But uh, I, I, uh, we yeah. were the exception that proves the rule <laughs> that, and, that people and, don't do that. And I've left them in the car before, but I'd always leave it like in a center console or in a in the glove compartment. Sure. I never knew anybody that left it in the visor, but every movie, like if there's a car in a movie and you're looking for the keys, they're going to be in the visor. If somebody is carrying a bag of groceries, it's going to be a paper bag with a baguette sticking out of it. These are just laws of film. You cannot, you cannot escape them. Um, uh, one so, I heard on a, a podcast recently was every, every movie house attic has a birdcage in it for some reason. And I'm like, you know, you know I what? Think a, a birdcage in a steamer trunk. I think that is. I yeah. think that is a rule. Actually, I think yeah. so. Those are that's another one of the commandments uh, when it comes to filmmaking. Well, the commandments. I like that. <laughs> um, but this is a fun movie. I definitely recommend watching it if you haven't already. And if you haven't watched it in a little while, throw it on. Watch it again. Uh, it's on HBO Max right now, so it's easy to find. An hour. If you skip the end credits, it's about an hour and forty minutes. Hour and forty-five. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. So, uh, yeah, I would say everybody involved in this movie has done better movies, but that does not make this movie a slacker. This movie is knows exactly what it is, and and it's a good time. I had a great time re rewatching this. I really appreciate you uh, dropping it in my lap and saying, "Hey, watch this for the show tomorrow." I, otherwise, I probably wouldn't have. So, uh, had a good time. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being on the show. It's always fun having you on, um, and welcome back anytime, of course. Uh, now, you do a movie podcast with your son. I do. I've had, uh, I've had both of you on, because I've had Austin on, I've had you on, I've had you both on at the same time. Uh, we've, we've done this a couple times together, yeah. Um, yeah, Austin and I do a podcast called The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. Uh, we are in our sixth season. Uh, we've nice. been going for... Uh, coming up on three years. Um, and currently we are doing a season of double features where I pick a movie and then Austin picks a compliment to that movie and then we switch and he gets the lead movie and I pick the double feature. Our latest double feature uh, is 2017 Edgar Wright movie Baby Driver that I paired with 1980s the Blues Brothers, because they're both based in music and car chases, and uh, we thought they'd fit well together. Uh, we're having a good time with that. We, you know, have always talked movies anyway, uh, so we just put a microphone in a couple of themes and a very loose show doc in front of us. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's a that's real. It. You can get it wherever you get podcasts. Yeah, the picture show with Austin and Phil Root is, and it's a real fun show. I, I very much enjoy it, and I like. Uh, I like this idea you're doing right now with the pairings because like that one in particular, Baby Driver and Blues Brothers are both music focused, have car chases, but in very, yeah. very different ways. Different and like, ways. Yeah. I am I am such a fan of Edgar Wright that I will watch anything that he makes, but I also really like John Landis, especially eighties John Landis. Right. Yeah. And it's really cool to see the different like the different ways that you can do because 
you could tell somebody, yeah, uh, car chases in the movie and, and it's got a musical theme to it. Uh, and and that explains both movies perfectly. But they're so different. Um, so that's really yeah, cool. I, uh, I, I, I like that. And I, I can't wait to hear you guys talk about uh, Blues Brothers. Uh, that just dropped uh, today. Oh, okay. Uh, today's Monday, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, that just dropped today. And that was an interesting one that really... They not every movie does this, but this one really pointed out the generation gap between Austin <laughs> and I. Because and I brought this movie up, I'm like, I grew up on this movie. I watched it a hundred thousand times. It introduced me to all this music, and it's called The Blues Brothers. And he had never even heard of it. Like it was, <laughs> it was so off his radar. It is so a product of its time uh, that just has not moved forward in the same way. And it's just. Stuff like that, I really enjoy talking to him, introducing him to movies. He's introduced me to movies, and and in that way, we we both love movies, but we come at it from different directions, and um, yeah, and sometimes we get a really cool mix like that. Yeah, and that's there's something about introducing movies to somebody. It's why I started I this yeah. show, and and it's it's grown to where I get to introduce a lot of movies to people, but I also am getting shown things that I never would have watched on my own. Right. And just broadening my horizons uh, and and looking at new stuff and looking at it from a different uh, viewpoint than I maybe would have when I was younger. And it's been, it's been great. So I love that you do that with Austin too. And Austin's a good kid. And you guys have a great uh, chemistry on the show together. So it's always enjoyable to listen. Only to. on the show. In real life. <laughs> oh my God. Just can't stand each other. <laughs> So, but th- thank you so much, Phil, for being here this week. This has been great. Um, and definitely, folks, check out uh, The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. Um, n- now, next week, uh, I've got Sirenex coming back, Sean uh, White, and we are going to talk about John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, because John Wick Chapter 4 comes out in about a week and a half, two weeks. And so I haven't seen Chapter 3 yet. I've seen the first two. Uh, so Sirenex and I are going to talk about it next week and I'm looking forward to it because these John Wick movies are just fun, crazy action. And also chapter three has one of my favorites, uh, in it. And that is Mark Dacascos. And I want to see him and Keanu Reeves have it out. Uh, Jason Manzukis in the third one as well. Uh, I think so. And also NBA player Boban Marjanovic is in it. And Boban is awesome because he's like seven foot four. And so oh, I'm nice. I want to see yeah. how that goes because he's big, but he moves pretty well for that size. You have to, to play in the NBA, but I mean, he's surprisingly agile for seven foot four. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and that's going to be coming up next week. Now this show uh, comes out every week. Um, usually record Sunday nights. So if you want to catch it live, you can at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter or Mastodon or at, pick your social network. I'm TV's Travis there. Um, and, uh, but I post about the show. I post my thoughts on, on stuff. Um, I was, uh, I didn't watch the Oscars last night, but I did, um, pay attention to kind of some of the stuff that won. I was glad to see everything everywhere all at once, uh, win a whole bunch because that movie was amazing. Great movie. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, uh, and if you want to support the show, you can do that by, uh, spreading the word, get it, letting other people know to, uh, to subscribe. You can go to patreon.com slash W Y H S and back the show 
financially if you want to for as little as a dollar per episode. I do have merch available on my site at tvstravis.com, and you can also find the other shows that I do there. So uh, tvstravis.com or tvstravis anywhere on the Internet, uh, it's me. Until next week, Phil, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And until next week and uh, John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, this has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Get out and enjoy some movies. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>